Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And today's episode is dedicated to one very special Patreon supporter, Emma B. Hi, Emma. Hello, Emma, and thank you for all of your support. It's very much appreciated. Thanks also go to our new Patreon supporter, Gary Dugdale. Thanks, Gary. Goodies are on their way to you now. Thanks, Gary. And if you would like to come and join the party and support the show financially like Gary has done, then head over to our page at patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast. We are delighted to announce the launch of this month's Patreon competition. We have a signed copy of the brilliant novel Midday by David B. Lyons to give away to one lucky Patreon supporter at the end of the month. So to be in with a chance of winning this fantastic book... Which I have read and can personally recommend. Oh, okay. Might have to read it myself as well. Um, Sign up to support the show via Patreon by Friday the 29th of March and the winner will be announced on the 30th. This week, we're taking a look at the tragic murder of 25-year-old Joanna Yates, who vanished from her Bristol flat on the 17th of December in 2010. Just eight days after she disappeared on Christmas Day, her frozen body was discovered three miles from her home, dumped on the roadside next to a quarry. This is a case that happened on my doorstep and I remember it vividly and I know a lot of the locations that feature in Jo's movements on the evening she went missing, so the pub she visited that night, the flat she lived in, um, I don't know that particular flat but I know the road very well and even the location where her body was discovered, it's all very familiar territory to me Um, and it's a case I thought long and hard about covering actually because um, I don't know, just because when you're quite familiar with it, I find it a bit more difficult. Mm. It makes it somehow more real, doesn't it? It makes it really um, personal. Even though you don't know the person, it's still... Yeah. Yeah. But I do think it's important to keep Joe's memory alive. And I know we're only a small podcast, but um, I also think there are lessons to be learnt from the way this particular case was covered by the media. Oh my God, Absolutely. And the way people made very quick judgments, essentially convicting one particular individual mm. of Joe's murder because of the way he looked and acted. So I think really it's a case that has had ramifications for the way in which the press reports stories yeah. of this nature. And it's a case that has been hijacked by others at times to satisfy their own agendas, rightly or wrongly. A case of where the victim has on occasion, I think, sadly been overlooked. And that is the thing with this case, is it can sometimes become about him rather than about Joanna so and I don't think that's that particular individual's Mm, fault I think it's just not no I think it was just very of the time Mm -hmm. the story that he had to tell um so who was the victim in this case then so Joanna Yates was born on the 19th of April in 1985 to David and Teresa in the rural county of Hampshire She was privately educated at Embley Park near Romsey, which is in the New Forest. Beautiful part of the world. I went to a wedding there once. Um, It's very nice. And following school, Joe went on to study A-levels in art, biology and geography at Peter Simmons College. She graduated with a degree in landscape architecture from Rittle University College in Chelmsford in Essex and received a postgraduate diploma in the same subject from the University of Gloucestershire. So she was bright both in terms of her intelligence but also her personality and Jo actually went on to complete a master's degree in garden design at Bristol University just months before she died. She sounds really interesting as well like her interests and her hobbies are also varied I really like that. Yeah and I'll come on to that in a bit more detail because she was a very much an outdoorsy person and that, that comes through in this. She sounds like it. 
So Joe met boyfriend Greg Reardon when they both worked at the landscape architecture firm Highland Edgar Driver in Winchester. That took you a, a couple of practices, I'm sure. I try, mean, try saying that after a couple of yeah, drinks. Yeah, fair play for getting it right first time then. <laughs> mm. And the two moved in together in 2009 before relocating to Bristol when the company moved there. The couple found a flat to rent in a large converted house at 44 Canning Road in the affluent area of Clifton and all seemed well for the pair as they settled into their new life in Bristol, forging ahead with their careers, both later moving to a different company, the Building Design Partnership, where they were popular with clients and colleagues alike. Joe and Greg were described as the perfect couple by friends and they shared a mutual love of the outdoors and of outdoor sports. Joe enjoyed surfing, biking, rowing and snowboarding and Greg excelled at skiing and I read also that Joe had joined a rowing club in Bristol shortly before she died and she used to practice on the harbour side in mm. Bristol so very much an outdoorsy person. Yeah. Theirs was a life of domestic bliss with the couple even adopting a cat who they named Bernard. Meow! <laughs> mm. I had to. What a great name for a cat though, that Bernard. That is a good name for a cat. Better than your stupid cat's name. Shut up, you love my cats. No. You chat to them. Well, I try to. Anyway. Um, So as 2010 drew to a close, Joe and Greg were looking forward to heading back to Hampshire to spend Christmas with Joe's family and friends. It was a Christmas that Joe would not live to see, however. A Christmas that would become memorable for all of the wrong reasons for Greg and the Yates family. As families up and down the country were waking up to presents and Prosecco on Christmas Day, Joe's loved ones were receiving the heartbreaking news that her frozen, snow-covered body had been discovered by a couple out walking their dog that morning. I don't know why, but this is like the third or something case that you've covered over Christmas time, and it just somehow... I think because it's such a generally exciting, happy time, it just makes it somehow worse. Oh yeah, I completely, I would completely agree. Mm. I think anything like that, when literally up and down the country, families are celebrating together, they're with loved ones. It's a joyous, happy occasion, obviously. And then to have something like this happen, it almost yeah. shatters your own memories. Because mm-hmm. I'm thinking, what have I covered then? So obviously, this Alan Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, which we covered with the Twisted Britain crossover. Yeah, I can't remember that. I'm I feel sure like there, there is another else. one. Yeah. yeah, I feel like you like to upset me and um, do stuff that will make me sad about Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a really sad case. Mm. They all are, obviously. And I know last week, the last couple of weeks, we've kind of said we will try and come back with something more lighthearted. Obviously, yeah. I've not done that this week. No, you haven't. Um, but then when we have covered things like robberies and scams, those episodes aren't as popular but as also, these. Like, they are still harrowing. Like, it still does get to you, some of the cases. Like, the, um, I think it was perhaps a patron episode rather than a main one, but when we looked at the... Um, Securitas deposit raid and then thinking about how those staff members would have felt or how he would have felt as well like being taken in by like a police car but it's not a police car that was that was was pretty shocking yeah Yeah. and also I think that was a Patreon episode a bonus episode we did but also with that one they were all locked in cages Mm -hmm. in the Securitas depot and left there for hours and Mm -hmm. hours so So even if we try and find something a bit more light-hearted it's going to be difficult well it's crime at the end of the day so it's never fun the only one that I've managed to have a bit of a laugh with was that guy who went on the run over Christmas at the Christmas special because Whilst what he did was horrific and I'd never advocate like taunting the police and stuff, actually it 
it was quite funny. And even the police had a sense of yeah, humour about did. that. Yeah, they did. They absolutely did. That was a fun episode. It was the first time that you'd said the C word. Oh my God, and you put the jingle bells. I had to cover that up. It that was, was obscene. Good. It was obscene, and I, I apologise. And you just came out with it, and then you said it again. I didn't, though. He wrote it on his Facebook. Mm. Anyway, we digress. Okay, so I'm going to take you back to Friday the 17th of December now, to the night of Joe's disappearance, eight days before the discovery of her body. It's 5pm. Joe kisses Greg goodbye as he sets off to visit his family in Sheffield for the weekend. She heads to a pub called The Ram on Park Street in the centre of Bristol for after-work drinks with colleagues. Arriving at 6pm, Joe finds her friends and orders a drink at the bar. With Christmas just around the corner, the pub is looking festive. There is a tree and decorations and it is packed with revellers, celebrating the end of the working week and excitedly looking forward to the festive period. Joe is her normal happy self that evening, smiling and laughing with colleagues and generally having a good time. It's now 8pm, Joe decides to head home and leaves the pub, setting off on foot for the half hour walk back to her flat on Canning Road. She stops off at a nearby Waitrose but doesn't see anything that takes her fancy so heads to Bargain Booze where she buys two small bottles of cider and then on to Tesco where she buys a pizza. As she walks the few minutes from Tesco to her home, she calls her friend and the two have a brief chat before arranging to meet on Christmas Eve when Joe is back home in Hampshire. Joe arrives at her flat at around 8.40pm and sets about making dinner. 20 minutes later, she is dead. Over the course of that weekend, Joe's boyfriend Greg texts her, but she doesn't respond. And this isn't unusual for the couple and he isn't overly concerned. I kind of get that. Like, I think if you were calling and they just didn't reply, that's a bit different. If, like, if you kept on ringing and had missed calls, but they didn't call you back, that would be weird. But as long as the text messages aren't specific questions you need answered, it's just a, hi, I'm doing this. And uh, what did he say he was doing? He was doing, like, a, a holiday where he was... Uh, he was away uh, visiting family. He yeah. was visiting his brother. So he was, he probably had a really busy weekend yeah. catching up with family and friends. I, I kind of get that. Like, I think... You would, you'd be more worried if you were calling and calling and they didn't answer and they never phoned you back. But I do think a couple of text messages you probably, and especially if they're not the sort of couple where they're constantly texting. Yeah, and that's the thing. We don't mm. know the intricacies of that relationship. Yeah. We don't know exactly what was said in those texts. So yeah, I get it. If it's normal for them, it's normal for them. I'm not going to yeah. question it. My other half doesn't really like to text. So I know if I message him, he probably wouldn't text back. But then if I was ringing and ringing and he didn't answer, then I would be Yeah, worried. I think so, yeah. that's probably different. Mm. So Greg carries on with his weekend, catching up with family and friends in his hometown of Sheffield. And then he heads back to Bristol late on the Sunday night. Arriving at the flat, Greg soon realises Joe isn't home and he calls her mobile. He isn't overly concerned at this point, but his heart sinks when he hears a ringing noise coming from Joe's jacket pocket. Mm. It's cold and dark and nearly midnight at this point. Greg wonders why Joe would leave the flat at this time of night without her jacket or phone. He starts pacing up and down and makes a number of alarming observations. This is going to pull at your heartstrings, Bethan. Yeah. The couple's cat, Bernard, appeared to be unsettled and what's more, he appeared to be starving like he'd been neglected all weekend. Yeah. And like cats can pretend they're hungry when they're not. So like for them to actually be that hungry as well. Joe's keys and purse were on the table and Greg started to feel numb, later commenting that it was a horrible realisation that something was seriously wrong. Yeah, like the phone, you could almost understand she's grabbed a different coat. 
but that time of night especially as well like that's weird and then yeah to literally leave with nothing you wouldn't leave with nothing and joe wasn't the sort of person that would have gone out on Mm. the lash and you know for a drink with a friend and it turned into a bender and it was work the next day so even if she did she'd need a person her handbag yeah and a keys and she knows that greg's coming back and i think when greg talks about that feeling of numbness I think that's really interesting Mm. because I can really identify with that. And it's almost, obviously, I've never been in that situation. But when you're on the brink of panic, Mm -hmm. I think you are overcome with a feeling of numbness where your body is almost shutting down as your mind is starting to process what's actually Mm -hmm. happening. So I thought, yeah, it's really interesting how he described it. And it is the body is almost going into shock at that point. So at this point, Greg phones Joe's parents. Teresa, Joe's mom, answers and informs Greg that Joe is not with them and tells him to call the police. Teresa and her husband David set off on the two-hour journey to Bristol in the early hours of that morning. I mean, that really goes to show that this isn't normal for her. If they had any inkling that he was maybe exaggerating or getting a bit worked up over nothing, they wouldn't have done that. So that must show what sort of person she was and how close she was with her family that she wouldn't have just gone. I think it's a case of, uh, you know, call the police immediately. We're coming now because, yeah, you're absolutely right. They're probably in a state of panic thinking this is just not like Joe. What the hell's going on here? And you would, I think, in that situation to try and have any sort of control in a situation where there is no control, you need to be there. So speaking years later, Teresa said she remembers arriving at the flat and frantically searching it for clues. She said she found a receipt for the pizza Joe had bought from Tesco, but couldn't see any sign of the pizza itself. The bin hadn't been emptied, so any packaging or leftovers would surely be in there, but there was nothing. She recalls walking around the block, banging on the boots of parked cars in desperation, thinking maybe Joe had been abducted or somehow gotten herself locked into a car, a random car. And I I completely understand that lack of rational thought at a time like that. You are just desperate and will probably consider any possibility. Mm -hmm. But even in the early hours of that morning, Teresa had a gut feeling this was not going to end well and police had grave concerns too. When police spoke to Greg and Joe's parents in the hours after her disappearance, they quickly ascertained that she had no reason to willingly disappear. This was out of character for her. She had not done anything like this before, had no mental health issues, she wasn't taking any medication, and there was nothing going on in her life that would cause her to leave home unexpectedly. Police launched a missing persons inquiry and on the 21st of December, Joe's parents and Greg made a public appeal for the safe return of Joe at a police press conference. In another press conference broadcast live on the 23rd of December by Sky News and BBC News, Joe's father David commented on her disappearance saying, I think she was abducted after getting home to her flat. I have no idea of the circumstances of the abduction. I feel sure she would not have gone out by herself, leaving all these things behind, and I think she was taken away somewhere. With no sign of forced entry at the flat, police pursued the theory that Joe may have known her abductor, and they set about retracing her steps from the night she went missing. They spoke with the colleagues she met in the pub before she went missing, who all confirmed she was behaving normally. They reviewed CCTV footage on the route she had taken as she walked home that night, and they also conducted house-to-house inquiries, but with little evidence at the flat and no solid lines of inquiry to pursue further, they drew a blank. Joe had seemingly vanished without a trace. 
Fast forward a couple of days to Christmas Day morning and that couple, Mr and Mrs Birch, are out walking their dog on Longwood Lane in the rural village of Fayoland, approximately three miles from the flat Joe shared with Greg. Seeing a mound covered in snow by a wall which separated the road from a quarry, they sensed something wasn't quite right, but they continued walking before then turning around and going back to take a closer look. Glimpsing what looked like a pair of jeans, they were now able to make out the shape of a body and immediately called the police. And by this time, Joe's disappearance had been making front page mm. headlines for days. That must be what made them like pause. And I go think back. so. And I, I really think that they probably realised that was mm-hmm. Joe's body at that time. Yeah. So officers arrived on the scene and found Joe's frozen corpse fully clothed, except for a grey sock which was missing. She was curled up on her side. And I don't know why, but that just made me so sad. Mm, It's childlike, isn't it? I think it is almost in Mm. that fetal position. Yeah. Police were able to ascertain that she had lain there for a number of days. And although her body had not been hidden very well, it had gone unnoticed due to some heavy snow that had fallen in the preceding days. So again, I just think really, really sad that she had lain there for days and days, discarded at the side of the road like a piece of trash. When Joe's parents received the call on Christmas Day to inform them that their daughter's lifeless body had been found, Teresa recalls feeling a sense of relief. She was convinced at this point that her daughter was dead and her biggest fear was that her body would never be found and they would never know what had happened to her. As we've seen in cases such as the disappearance of Claudia Lawrence, of which parallels were drawn at this time, it is the not knowing that so often makes these kind of situations all the harder to bear for the loved ones. A post-mortem examination began the next day on the 26th of December, however, the results were delayed due to the frozen condition of the body. Joe's body had to literally be defrosted before an autopsy could be performed. And again, I just thought that was a one further humiliating act. Yeah, degrading and sad. Yeah. Police initially thought that it was possible Joe had frozen to death because her body showed no visible signs of injury. However, detectives announced on the 28th of December that the case had become a murder inquiry as a pathologist who performed her autopsy determined that Joe had died as a result of strangulation. The post-mortem indicated that she had died several days before being discovered and the examination also confirmed that Joe did not eat the pizza that she'd purchased on the night of her disappearance. It was also stated that the investigation found no evidence that Joanna was sexually assaulted, which I again found quite interesting. That's kind of like, at least that's something. Yeah. Like, it's still horrific, at least that's something. With the discovery of Joe's body and the results of the post-mortem confirming she'd been murdered, Avon and Somerset Police launched a murder investigation. Headed by Detective Chief Inspector Phil Jones, a senior officer with Avon and Somerset Constabulary's Major Crime Investigation Unit, a total of 80 officers and civilian staff were assigned to the case. It became one of the largest police operations in the constabulary's history, and DCI Jones urged the public to come forward with any information to help catch the killer, especially potential witnesses who were in the vicinity of Longwood Lane in the period before Joe's body was discovered. I should mention at this point that police did, of course, question Joe's boyfriend, 
Um, he was initially treated as a suspect. Mm. They seized his laptop and phone. They forensically examined that. But he had absolutely nothing to do with it. He had a strong alibi. They found absolutely no evidence to suggest that he had any involvement. So very quickly, he was ruled out of the investigation and treated as a witness. Yeah, I guess like it's, he would feel like he's just helping them with the inquiries and that's it, which is better. So yeah, it's much he more grieve a bit better then. It's much more clear cut because we've definitely seen cases where mm-hmm. a, a relative as being considered to be guilty when they've not been and it's taken Mm -hmm. days or weeks for that to be proven not to be the case following the discovery of joe's body and the results of the autopsy being released to the media dci jones said that officers have been inundated with thousands of calls and were exhausting every lead and avenue they were provided with in total officers examined over 100 hours of surveillance footage along with 293 tons of rubbish which was seized from the area around Joe's flat and that's i mean that's a lot of rubbish that is 293 a huge tons to go through. i don't wow. envy the person that had to do that no. The charity Crime Stoppers offered a £10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Joe's murderer, while the Sun newspaper offered £50,000. Authorities advised people living in the area to secure their homes and warned women not to walk alone after dark. Speaking on the 29th of December about the murder investigation, Joe's father said, I fear that whoever has done this will never hand themselves in, but we live in hope that the police will catch whoever is responsible. One of the calls the incident room received was from a woman who had attended a party at a neighbouring house on Canning Road on the night of Joe's disappearance. She recalled hearing two loud screams shortly after 9pm coming from the direction of Joe's flat. Another neighbour who lived behind Joe's home said that he heard a woman's voice scream, help me, although he could not recall exactly when the incident had occurred. Can you imagine, like, you hear that, but you just think it it was nothing or you don't think to go and investigate or call about it. And then a week later, you see this press release and you see the police asking for this information. Like, how absolutely crazy is that? Yeah, you would you would just feel a sense of guilt, even though mm. I don't think yeah, you should. Yeah, there's none, nothing you could have done. Because how many times have we heard someone scream and just thought mm-hmm. it's kids playing? And we talked we've about talked this about before. This so much. Yeah, I am one of those freaks that will check what time it is and you'll like, run out into the street yeah. about where it was. But I don't know if I'd necessarily go and invest, like try and find out what's going on because I think I'd be scared for myself as well. I think if I heard someone shout "Help me," I probably mm. would investigate them. But if it's just screaming. You know, on a Friday night yeah. at nine o'clock, you're just going to think somebody's Near drunk. Christmas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with nobody reporting any other suspicious activity around the time of Joe's disappearance, remember this is a busy street. Joe lived in a house that had been converted into a half dozen flats. Police started exploring the possibility that the perpetrator had entered the flat before Joe had returned home. But who could have gained entry to Joe's flat without forcing their way in? Oh, yeah, because she'd then get home and go to put her key in and it would have looked normal. Otherwise, she wouldn't. Yeah. Like, it would, I don't know, it would have to seem normal for her to go home. And also, the police were appealing for information. Was somebody acting suspicious at around 8.40, 8.50 in this location? It's a busy location. No one's seen anything. So, yeah, what, did somebody perhaps, was somebody waiting in her flat from five o'clock? Oh, that's horrible. It's a horrible Ooh, thought. Yeah. I hate that. It really like, is. It disturbed yeah. me. Um, And also, who would have known that she would be home alone that evening? 
Well, officers knew Joe's landlord, a retired English teacher called Christopher Jeffries, lived in the same Victorian building which housed Joe's flat. The police had questioned him informally following Joe's disappearance, as they had with all of the tenants in the building, but Christopher Jeffries had been particularly helpful in the early days of the investigation, and officers knew that he had spare keys for every flat in the building. He had also proactively contacted the police in the days after Joe's disappearance to add some more detail to his original statement. That and, does seem a bit like yeah. suspect, doesn't it? And we've seen it before, haven't we, where, uh, you know, a suspect has been quite heavily wanted to be quite heavily they, involved yeah, in the investigation. they want to know what's going on or they want the almost like glory of it. So yeah, I, I think it's yeah. either or. It's wanting to kind of have some control of the situation. How close am I to getting yeah. caught? Or it is just out of the oh, thrill yeah, of like it. Him, yeah. You know, being so close mm. to being caught and not being caught. Um, what's more, Christopher Jeffries had also informed the police that Greg had mentioned to him on the Friday afternoon that Joe went missing of that same day, that he was going away for the weekend and that Joe would be home alone. So was Christopher Jeffries perhaps obsessed with Joe? Perhaps he concocted a plan to let himself into her flat before patiently awaiting her return from work and then attempting to sexually assault her? Perhaps his plan went wrong and he had to silence her. Um, police believe this to be the case and at 7am on the 30th of December, Christopher Jeffries was arrested on suspicion of Joe's murder. I think my my thing with this is like it's completely valid for him to have been arrested on suspicion of her murder like all of the clues and all of the information that the police have i think it's completely the right thing for them to have arrested him and he's only been arrested on suspicion on suspicion yeah, yeah. he's not charged with it he's being questioned yeah. in relation so he was taken to a local police station for questioning and forensic investigators inspected his flat officers put it to him that he had gone round to her flat on the friday evening let himself in and then killed her Joe's next-door neighbour, a Dutch man called Vincent Tabak, had seen reports of Christopher Jeffrey's arrest online and around 10am that same morning, so like three hours after Christopher Jeffries had been arrested, he telephoned the incident room in Bristol from his hotel in Holland. He'd been spending Christmas with his family over there um, and he informed officers that he had noticed Christopher Jeffries' car had changed direction on the night of Joe's disappearance. It was parked on the road in front of the flat, but had definitely been driven somewhere that night, as earlier in the night it was facing one way, and later on that same night it had turned around and was facing in the opposite direction. Importantly, this contradicted Christopher Jeffrey's initial statement to the police, where he said he had been home alone all night reading. Officers realised they needed to take a formal statement from Tabak and visited him at his hotel in Holland. As was routine, they requested a DNA sample from him and he agreed, albeit somewhat reluctantly, which was a bit weird. So weird, in fact, that the officer taking mm. the sample did report that to her superiors. Christopher Jeffrey's car was forensically searched. If he was lying and he had driven it that night, had he used it to dispose of Joe's body? Would officers find Joe's DNA in the boot, perhaps? Jeffries was questioned for three days and nights and held in custody the whole time, but ultimately released without charge. 
The whole ordeal had been understandably traumatic for him, and whilst he started to come to terms with what he had been through, he was most frustrated that the police had wasted three days investigating him when the real killer was out there, and they mm. could have been investigating it more. It is, it's um, something you don't really think about, but do you remember the case of Leanne Sabine, and then after she died and left the mummified body of her husband, her friend was then interrogated because she was the one who found it, and she said that she was you know, yelled at in the street and that sort of thing. And also the horror of being kept in the prison, well, in a cell because she was being questioned all the time. You kind of almost don't, it's quite easy to forget how harrowing that must be. And especially for this guy who's who has so far been seen to be trying to help as much as possible. And I think it's harrowing at the best of times. Even if you are responsible for the crime, you'd probably be a bit scared. Mm, yeah. If you know you've done nothing wrong, it must just be a whole yeah. other feeling. I also hate when it's like he was at home all, all night alone reading a book because the number of nights in that I've just had where I'm just watching something on the telly and I wouldn't be able to get an alibi. You know, it's just there's hours where you're not necessarily accounted for. And you almost... so terrifying, isn't it, that someone could then request, what did you do at that time? And you're just... Yeah, you're just mm. kind of doing what you would normally do. And you're, yeah. you're almost being penalised for leading a bit of a quieter life yeah, being... and not being sociable on a Friday night. Yeah, I like being boring. <laughs> Me too. So just to make it clear, um, police dropped all charges against Jeffries. Um, DNA found on Joe, believed to be that of her killer, was not a match to him. But it was too late, really. During his three days of questioning, the British press had a field day, printing story after story, accusing him of being a monster, a weirdo. They interviewed ex-colleagues and students, and Jeffries was essentially paraded as a guilty man. So to add some context here, Jeffries could be described as a bit eccentric. At the time, he had long grey hair and looked like a kind of typical nutty professor, like a real kind of old school academic. He often reminds me of, um, you know, in Harry Potter, the like janitor that's a bit creepy and nobody like, you know, he kind of reminds me of him a little bit. And it's so harsh because it's just what someone looks like and you shouldn't make a judgment on that. Yeah, and he... But that is exactly what the papers did at that point. Yeah, of course. And, you know, he didn't own a TV. He'd never been married. But did that make him a killer? Absolutely not. Not having a TV is a bit weird, though. It is a bit weird, I wonder if we've got any listeners who don't have a telly. Please get in touch if you don't have a telly. I grew up with a family that didn't. And we'd go around to their house, like, for holidays. Oh, okay. I thought you meant you didn't have a telly. No, no, we had a telly. But um, we'd go around to their house and we'd be like, but what do you do? What did they do? (laughs) They had, like, nice family time and they'd go out for walks and stuff. How weird. Please get in touch if we have any listeners who don't own a TV. Um, Please get in touch and tell us what the hell you do. I'd be interested to know. (laughs) You sounded really accusatory then. I am accusatory. They're allowed to not have a TV. But it is unusual. It is, yeah. It definitely is. And really, I kind of just wanted to say that, you know, people were really quick to judge Christopher Jeffries. Yeah, absolutely. as, As we have just done, really. And we are doing that because we know what the rest of the story is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the papers just did. They latched onto little things that, in the grand scheme of life, is not important at all. No, no. Um, so just to kind of very briefly go into it, Christopher Jeffries did sue a number of British newspapers and media companies and was successful. And I know that he received several hundred thousand pounds in compensation, which I think was rightly deserved. Yeah, as he should have done, definitely. Absolutely. And there was also a really interesting drama that was on ITV 
I don't know, maybe like three or four years ago, which covers this whole case. Probably more from his perspective, but it was a brilliant drama, very accurate. And the guy that played Christopher Jeffries won a BAFTA. He was that yeah, good. Yeah, it was a really good program. It was. It made me really sad because you really do see it from his side of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's probably on YouTube. If anyone is kind of looking for it, have a look on YouTube. After releasing Jeffries, senior officers from the investigation asked for assistance from the National Policing Improvement Agency, and that's an agency which provides expertise for difficult cases. So on the 4th of January, a couple of weeks after Joe's murder, a clinical forensic psychologist who had previously been involved as a criminal profiler in other high-profile murder cases joined the investigation to help narrow down the number of potential suspects. DCI Jones stated that his officers had established over 1,000 lines of inquiry and he said, I can assure you we are determined to solve this crime and bring Joe's killers to justice. And I think there was more pressure on them at this point because time had passed. It had still been garnering mass media attention and we now had the whole issue of Christopher Jeffries being arrested Mm. when he'd done nothing wrong. Definitely. And I think as well, like, as um, a victim type as well, she is beautiful blonde so the papers really did latch on to her as somebody to to make like to have press about so the police would have felt really really pressured by the media and the public as well as obviously the normal people who'd be pushing them like her family and her boyfriend of course yeah so police launched a national advertising campaign to appeal for witnesses through facebook the page established on the 4th of january had been viewed nearly a quarter of a million times by the following day while cctv footage of joe had been viewed online on youtube 120,000 times by the 5th of january so this really did capture the public's interest and attention on the 9th of january bristol east mp kerry mccarthy gave her support to the idea of public dna screening if the police found it useful So the Avon and Somerset Constabulary had conducted mass DNA screening during the 1995 investigation into the disappearance of Louise Smith and McCarthy suggested that the screening process should be extended beyond Clifton to the wider Bristol area. Detectives also began tracking the movements of several hundred registered sex offenders living within their jurisdiction to determine the individual's whereabouts of on the 17th of December. And that's like living here in Bristol. Mm. That's quite worrying because I sort of think, so there are several hundred people that are on the sex offenders register yeah. within a few miles from here. Mm-hmm. In January, a reconstruction of the case was filmed on location in Bristol and that was due to be broadcast on the 26th of January in the edition of BBC television programme. Crime Watch! Of course. Snow Business, a Gloucestershire-based firm that had been involved in the production of the Harry Potter film, so they're getting a double mention today. Um, They were contacted to reproduce the snowy conditions at the time of Joe's disappearance, so they have literally got in a Hollywood special effects company to make that reconstruction as truthful, as real as possible. The reconstruction of Joe's last movements was filmed on the 18th of January and that received on it in itself, you know, loads of media attention. So within 24 hours of news coverage about that production, over 300 more people had contacted the police with information. Just hours before the reconstruction was due to air, forensic scientists made a breakthrough at last. 
The traces of DNA found on Joe's body were matched to Tabak, Joe and Greg's next-door neighbour. He was just an idiot for, like, ringing up, really, because he wouldn't have had to have had a sample taken if he wasn't ringing them from his hotel room. Yeah, had he not phoned mm-hmm. up, he wouldn't have got caught, because I don't actually think they would have done mass DNA screening. It's quite a big deal to do that. I um, doubt they'd have done it. And he might have just stayed nearby, abroad. Yeah, if he stayed away and wasn't in the area when they were going around taking samples from people, he could have easily, like, gone under the radar. But it was literally that call. Officers yeah. had already questioned him again informally, mm-hmm. um, as they had everyone, as I said earlier. Yeah. Um, and they'd completely ruled him out, like they'd ruled out all the other tenants in the building. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was the fact that they went to question him as a routine. They took DNA. Yeah. He was a bit kind of weird about that. And, yeah, it just kind of, they, they eventually matched it. So they couldn't say whether the DNA was from saliva or semen or even touch, but they could say that the probability of it not being a match with tobacco was less than one in a billion. I don't like the way that you're explaining what it could or could not have been. I don't think you needed to say that. That's gross. Well, I'm just saying that they really yeah, struggled to actually get a profile was, yeah. on that DNA and they actually had to get a specialist company involved mm. to uh, to have it really looked at in some detail. And that's why it yeah. took so long from from them kind of heading out to Holland to uh, take a statement from Tabak, which was right at the end of 2010, mm-hmm. to Tabak being arrested, which I think was on the 20th of January. Uh, yeah, there was quite a gap there yeah. and that is purely because it took so long. So, wow. so yeah. Um, what's more, police knew that Tabak had been alone on the night of the murder he lived in the flat on canning road with his girlfriend um, but she was out at a christmas party until the early hours of the morning that night so as i said on the 20th of january avon and somerset police arrested the 32 year old dutch engineer canning road was closed by police while scaffolding was constructed around joe's home and officers sealed off to back's adjacent flat so he lived kind of literally opposite mm. on the ground floor I think um, Joe and Greg were flat one, he was flat two. Okay, really close. Really close. Investigators also searched a nearby townhouse of a friend where Tabak was believed to have been staying about a mile away, because don't forget this whole building is kind of sealed Mm -hmm. off. And I remember vividly when that road was closed. Wow. Because I lived around there at the time and it was closed off. Wow, that's really like shocking isn't it to be just driving along somewhere normal and then realizing that's the reason why it's all closed off. and at that time mm-hmm. they didn't even know who it was yeah so tobacco was taken into custody and made no comment throughout his interviews he did however provide a written statement saying that he didn't know joe and had nothing to do with the murder after questioning him during 96 hours of possible detention, they had him for that long if they needed to, um, Tabak was actually charged on the 22nd of January with Joe's murder, so like 48 hours in. He made a brief appearance at Bristol Magistrates Court on the 24th of January and was remanded in custody. Tabak, legally presented by Paul Cook, declined to request bail during a hearing the following day and he was moved from Bristol Prison because of fears for his safety and was placed on suicide watch at Long Larton Prison near Evesham in Worcestershire. So again, Bristol Prison, I mean, I drove past that today. Mm. Uh, it's kind of literally a mile or so out of the city. It's a quite one of those quite weird prisons that is so close to the city centre. Yeah, I feel like it's been mentioned in one of our cases before and you've said about how 
close it is. Yeah, I can't remember who was there now. Yeah. It's quite recent. Mm. Um, but it's, it's one of those prisons where it's probably 100 yards from a main road where there's loads of bars and restaurants. So I always feel like the criminals inside Ooh. would kind of hear people having fun on a Friday, Saturday yeah. night, thinking, oh, God, you know, I'm literally yards from yeah. fun and freedom. Rightly so, that they're locked up. Yeah, but it's also like, yeah, it's also awful. And it's also quite scary. Like, what if they manage to escape? Well, I remember looking at a house once around there and um, at the bottom of the garden there was this massive wall and it was about 12 foot high and the, like, letting agent said, that's the prison behind. Or was it cheap then, the house? No. Oh. No, it's Mm. Bristol. So, um, Tabak initially maintained he was not responsible for Joe's death, claiming the DNA evidence linking him to the crime had been fabricated by corrupt officials. Of course it had, because that's believable. Yeah, it's always the defence, isn't it? However, not long after his arrest, on the 8th of February, he told Peter Brotherton, a prison chaplain, that he had killed Joe and he now intended to plead guilty. The trial of Vincent Tabak started on the 4th of October in 2011 at Bristol Crown Court before Mr Justice Field and a jury. His counsel in the trial was William Clegg QC, that's Nick Clegg's brother, and the prosecutor... Is it really? It is, yeah, no, because I've got his book. Yeah, he's written a book, which is really interesting. interesting. Um, And the prosecutor was Nigel Lickley QC. Tabak pleaded guilty to a manslaughter, but denied murder. The prosecution case was that Tabak had strangled Joe at her flat within minutes of her arrival home on the 17th of December in 2010, using what they quoted as sufficient force to kill her. The prosecutor stated that Tabak, around a foot taller than Joe at six foot four, had used his height and build to overpower her, literally pinning her to the floor by her wrists, and that she had suffered 43 separate injuries to her head neck, torso and arms during the struggle. The injuries included cuts, bruises and a fractured nose. Lickley told the court that the struggle was lengthy and her death would have been slow and painful. However, he did not offer an explanation for the reasoning behind Tabak's initial attack on Yates. Evidence was presented that Tabak had then tried to conceal the crime by disposing of her body. The court heard that DNA swabs taken from Joe's body had proved a match with Tabak. Samples found behind the knees of her jeans indicated she may have been held by the legs as she was carried, whilst fibre suggested contact with Tabak's coat and car. Blood stains were found on a wall overlooking a quarry close to where Joe was discovered, so it was kind of believed that he had tried to dispose of her over over that wall and sort of throw her into the quarry where there was less likelihood that her body would be found. But I think, you know, it was a really high wall. He wasn't prepared. He was quite a strong guy, but he just literally couldn't lift her over. Mm. So he just thought, I'm just going to dump her here then. But also it's good that that did happen because perhaps she wouldn't have been found in that quarry for a longer time. And isn't it weird just those kind of, just the fact that that wall might have been one foot too high meant her body was subsequently found. Whereas we've got people like Claudia Lawrence. Maybe there's one weird little fact out there, Mm -hmm. one tiny insignificant thing that means her body hasn't been found. Yeah, that makes a difference. Wow. 
So um, the prosecution also said that Tabak attempted to implicate Jeffries for the murder during the police investigation, as we know, and that in the days following Joe's death, he had made internet searches for topics that included the length of time a body takes to decompose and the dates of refuse collections in the Clifton area. What an idiot. In his defence, Tabak claimed that the killing had not been sexually motivated and told the court that he had killed Joe while trying to silence her after she screamed when he tried to kiss her. He claimed that Joe had made a flirty comment and invited him to drink with her at her home. He said that after she screamed, he held his hands over her mouth and then around her neck to silence her. I hate that like he's trying to almost like sully her name because... From ev- I, I don't know her, I didn't know her, but from everything you hear of her life, she wouldn't have invited him in with a flirty comment. What a, like, horrific thing to just make up about somebody. Yeah, it's, you know, it's He's complete just, tosh. Yeah. Oh, tosh. Tosh. I'm Someone's trying not to angry. swear now, yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely yeah, right. I it just, really sullies really, her reputation. I really don't like that. Yeah, yeah, and she so wasn't that kind of person. No. From everything I've read, yeah. um, she wouldn't have done that. But yeah, he was kind of saying that she beckoned him mm. in, that he was walking past her flat outside and she was in the kitchen and she kind of like beckoned him in and oh. then made this flirty comment he'd misread the signals gone to kiss her and then she'd oh, screamed and, then and he'd panicked killer honestly yeah. just have an embarrassing moment of oh god i shouldn't have tried to kiss you this is embarrassing i'll go home so Ugh, he he did uh, yeah he denied any suggestions of a struggle claiming to have held joe by the neck with only minimal force for around 20 seconds he told the court that after dumping the body he was in a state of panic which i completely understand that but i think what the prosecution were really saying is that it would have taken longer than 20 seconds for you joe to have died could, you can't surely strangle someone no. with 20 seconds for them to die so you know there was force she would have tried to fight back which is very sad the jury was sent out to deliberate on the 26th of October and returned with a verdict two and a half days later on the 28th of October and Tabak was found guilty of Joanna's murder by a 10-2 majority verdict. He was jailed for life with a minimum term of 20 years, which we see that term quite often. I just think mm. it's it's too short. I really do. He's going to be out of prison when he's about 52. As long as he does get paroled. And that's I, like a minimum term, but it will depend on what his behaviour is. And that's that true. Side that you would hope they would only release him if he's shown remorse. Yeah. If he's now, yeah, and if he yeah. looks kind of like safe, essentially to to release to to the general public. But I do, I see what you mean because fifty is not old at all. So that's that's still someone who could, in theory, go and hurt someone else. It's not like a eighty five year old man. It's very different. And he could still live a life at fifty two. He could meet yeah. somebody. He could marry. He could have a family at fifty two. And in that kind of side of things, you do hope that he is rehabilitated and does do something good. But I don't know. I, I hope he's rehabilitated. Suppose, but you? yeah, you do, and it's such a difficult one. But mm. I still kind of think, yeah, I don't want him to have any quality of life yeah, for what he did. Joanna's not. Yeah, absolutely. She's her mm-hmm. family have got a life sentence. She's never coming back. So um, there was some disturbing information that actually was classed as inadmissible evidence during the trial. So it was later um, reported that on the morning that Tabak killed Joe, he had watched porn films online of women being choked during sex. Seriously? I mean, I guess a lot of people probably watch stuff like that and don't go on to kill someone, but that is like, it's clearly on his mind. Yeah. If it was only that morning. And the judge did concede that there was indeed, despite 
Tabak's protestations, there was a sexual motive here. Yeah, absolutely. I think strangulation is one of those methods of killing where psychologically that is very sexual. And it's so intimate. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, who was Vincent Tabat then? Um, I'm just going to kind of briefly cover it, but he was born in February 1978. He was a Dutch engineer who lived and worked in the UK since 2007. So he hadn't been in this country for that long when this happened, probably about three years. Um, he was from quite a large family. He was the youngest of five siblings and he was raised in Uden, which is about 21 miles north of Eindhoven. Tabak's childhood next-door neighbour, John Massers, described him after the trial as an intelligent, introverted loner. Some people have described Tabak as having different personas to different people. He could be sociable or introverted depending on who he was with. Christopher Jeffries said he was a thoroughly civilised, courteous person, the ideal tenant in many ways, but different people described him in different ways. His family said he was quiet and calm. However, his work colleagues in the UK said he was outgoing and sociable. Sounds like quite psychopathic that he can almost change who he is around people. Yeah, I would agree. Mm. I think there's, you know, potential multiple personality disorder here. Um, But yeah, very much psychopathic to try and manipulate people. Mm. I'm like you. I can empathise with you, but it's not genuine. Because from what we see about Christopher Jeffries, he was such a um, sensible person and such a calm man. And he would have had like pride in manners and that sort of thing. So for him to behave that way and for Christopher Jeffries to think of him in that way, to me, shows that he's trying to almost mirror what he sees. That's so true, yeah. Mm. After the trial, it emerged that pornographic images of children had been found on Tabak's laptop, yeah. So in December 2013, the Crown Prosecution Service announced he would be prosecuted for possessing those images. And on March the 2nd in 2015, he pleaded guilty to possessing more than 100 indecent images of children and was sentenced to 10 months in prison to run concurrently with his existing life sentence. 10 months? I know. And I can't... I should know this, but concurrently, that just means it runs at the same time. Yeah. So it's not on top of. No. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So um, just briefly then to bring us to a close, remembering their lost daughter, Joe's parents described her as a beautiful and talented young lady. They said Joe was taken from her. She was a beautiful, talented young lady who was destined to fly high. Her life was stolen from her and she was stolen from us. Our lives stopped from the time that we knew Joe was missing. We gain a little solace from the fact that a high point in Joe's life was her graduation in November when her life was perfect. Our grief and sadness includes the experiences which she missed out on in terms of family and children and rising through her profession. For us, we will always miss the presence which came with her, hearing her voice, her lightness and standing back with pride, watching her grow through life. Greg said Joe was a beautiful woman, beautiful in mind, body and soul. She had a great career ahead of her as a landscape architect and would have achieved a great many more things in her life if only she had been given the chance. I will always love her. Mm, that's heartbreaking. That's really sweet. It's so sad, isn't mm. it? But I wanted, I couldn't end at all on a positive note other than 
their and love for her. You don't want to end talking about anybody apart from her either. No. She's so important and she's the main person that we have to remember. Absolutely. Mm. So um, we hope you found the case interesting. Some of you may have remembered this. Mm-hmm. It was big news at the time. Um, let us know your thoughts. You can reach out to us in all of the usual ways. You can. So find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter by searching Seeing Red, the UK True Crime podcast. So until next time, we will see you then. See you later. Bye. Bye.